Continuing with our relay analogy from earlier, many people around the world recognize the scene of a famous athlete bearing a burning torch. Rain or shine, an inextinguishable flame is carried to its destination at the start of the Olympic Games. What many people don't know is that that flame was lit weeks prior in Olympia, Greece, and it is transported to the host city of the Olympics. Another astonishing fact I found out was that in the case of the upcoming 2024 Olympics in Paris, that torch will be carried by 10,000 people before it reaches its final destination. Now this is a really powerful picture filled with all sorts of symbolism. You have endurance, the endurance of those running or traveling with the flame. You have a picture of a flame never going out once as it goes from Greece all the way around the world in some cases. These three chapters in Genesis are an amazing section of the story that show us what it means for God to keep the fire of his promise continually burning even in the passing of generations and how those who trust him choose to hold that promise as precious, how they set their sights on what is ahead as they hold on to God's words. We've seen over and over again in Genesis that God will keep his promises, and I hope that that's not lost on us this morning, though it's this repeated theme. It's repeated on purpose, and whether you feel like you are especially in need of God's promises or not right now, today is the day to count on them and to base your life upon them. This section of Genesis provides a description of what it means to act upon God's promises in faithfulness to him, even as he continues to remind us that the promise remains and remains and is with us as we carry it like a torch. He is responsible for keeping it lit, and we are responsible to do something with it. The reality is that we are faced with opportunity after opportunity to be tempted to sit on the sidelines of God's redemption story rather than participating in faith, to act as if God is not God and that we are not specially favored and loved by him through Jesus Christ and that his promises don't have real bearing on our daily lives and habits and major life decisions. You, You know this, you've experienced this, wondering why sermon after sermon seemed to not make a difference wondering why none of what God has said seems to be in play as you walk through an agonizing season, wondering what difference it will make when your days feel altogether predictable. But today is a call for us, yes, to trust in God's promises and to trust his sovereign plans, but to also act in a way that treats his promises as real and significant, to treat what he has said as the deciding factor in how we live. In Abraham's case, the promise of God factors into how he buries his own wife and how he chooses a wife for his son. And this says a whole lot more about the God of Abraham than Abraham himself. But for us, the trustworthy reputation that God has established in our hearts through Jesus Christ should be what makes us tick as Christians. The main idea is this, God whose faithfulness spans generations invites us to act upon our promised future as those who believe that he will fulfill his word. These three chapters 
give us three characteristics of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness survives death, God's faithfulness spans generations, and God's faithfulness sustains us to the end. First, though, in chapter 22, God's faithfulness survives death. The very serious and somber tone of chapter 22, which we looked at last week, where you see Abraham and Isaac going alone up the mountain in Moriah, and Abraham brandishing a blade against the son of promise is countered by the joy and glory of God's miraculous provision of a sacrifice in place of Isaac. As we track this story, though, that joy of not having to watch his son die is followed by stinging sorrow in chapter 23. It opens with the words, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the days of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba in the land of Canaan. It's very possible that at this point, Abraham and Sarah would have been married for over a century. Up till now, in particular in their latter days, they had trusted the Lord together and rested on his promise, but the consequence of death for Adam and Eve's sin is still in play. One of the longest marriages I've been aware of to date was that of Krishna and Joe Mantravati, upwards of 50 years together. And as I looked through my phone for a particular picture a week or so ago, I came across pictures of Joe's funeral a year ago to the day. As I studied Genesis 23, I thought, how fitting. Because even with the fresh grief over losing a godly sister and a faithful wife, I was also reminded afresh that Joe and Sarah share a common hope, a God who will be faithful always and forever. These two women both looked ahead in faith. And this much is true that they both have had their faith turned into crisp and clear sight. And do you know how we know? Because as we'll see once again, our God comes through on what he promises, even the promise of eternal life. Listen to Sarah's epitaph, one that she receives long after her death. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. She not only received promises of a son and descendants through her, but she knew who it was doing the promising, the faithful one. Sarah depended on him as did Joe, as should we, to the day he calls us home. It's after his weeping that Abraham rises and determines that he must set his hand to a ta- the task of burying Sarah in a fitting place. But where? Abraham, to this point, has traveled all the way to Canaan, but he has no specific rights over where he's been. He's a tent dweller who has moved about to pasture his flocks. He's been something between a couch surfer and a long-term renter. It's at this point, then, that he approaches a group of people called the Hittites. 
As he's lived among the Hittites, Abraham has gained respect from them as a steward of the land with the fact that God has truly blessed him, making him a mighty prince among them. So he seeks to negotiate both a place and a price. Now, I won't get into all the details of this conversation, but it begs the question, why does it take up so much space? This is essentially an ancient Near Eastern legal proceeding on the sale and purchase of land. Do we need to know the ins and outs of legal proceedings on the sale and purchase of land? Well, what's most important here is that the is that the ins and the outs of negotiating with this man named Ephron is that Abraham is determined. Why so determined? Well, you could say he's desperate for a place to bury his dead. Yeah, that may be the case, but as we'll see, his motivation is even deeper than that. As he engages this people, these people, it's a little unclear. Are the Hittites honoring Abraham by trying to gift him this field? Or if they gift him this field, do they still have rights to it and, and can rob from Abraham later? Either way, Abraham is determined to own this specific piece of property through an honest, full-price purchase. He wants it on record. He uses the current going rates and he pays the full amount. By the end of it, Abraham comes away with a deed of sorts to the field of Ephron, the cave and the cave of Machpelah. The last verse of the chapter says, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So in that last verse, don't blink or you'll miss something important. What did you see? What did we just read in those few words? Is it a tidy conclusion to a run-of-the-mill story? Far from it. You see, back in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur to travel to a land that he would show him, Canaan. Then in chapter 13, Abraham separates from Lot, and Lot goes east with his herds, and Abraham goes west into Canaan with his herds. This is where we hear a specific promise. The Lord said to Abram, in, in chapter 13, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Then, in two chapters later, God specifies the borders of this land. He, he gives some rivers as a border, and then he kind of repeats that by saying, these certain people live here. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Then we come all the way from Genesis 15 to Genesis 23 to the sorrow-filled moment of Sarah's death where Abraham acknowledges, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner here, which puts into motion a very important transaction from which Abraham departs with full ownership of property. Abraham, after almost 100 years of waiting, now owns his first share in the promised land. Like a shipmate standing in the crow's nest of a weather-beaten, persistent vessel, that man spots from miles away and yells down to his crewmates what this passage shouts, land ho! The promise is becoming real. Yet again, in this dramatic Genesis story, we have God making a promise 
Though years pass, he proves again and again that he will do exactly what he says. And then you also have Abraham, a man who takes that promise to the bank. He takes it very seriously, what God has said. And he also makes his movements based on those specific promises. More on that for us later, but I don't want to blow past the significance of what it means that God's chosen person has not only received a child of promise, but has claim on the land of promise. If we read our Bibles just carefully and attentively, you'll notice that this burial cave isn't arbitrary. All you have to do is look for the word Machpelah, and you'll find it a couple of times. The cave of Machpelah comes up throughout Genesis. We find out at the end section of what we're reading today in chapter 25 that Abraham himself was also buried here because Abraham knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that his descendants belonged dwelling in God's promised land where God would also dwell. We also find out that his son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca, whom we'll meet in a moment, are buried here. Then, in the next generation, Jacob and his wife, Leah, are also buried here. Except Jacob spent a good bit of time outside of the promised land in Egypt. In fact, while he was there and dying, his dying wish was to be buried at the cave of Machpelah. Why? Because being buried here was an act of faith in God's promise. Jacob knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that his children did not belong in slavery in Egypt forever. They were promised a land in God's presence. So how did, as Jacob is making this dying wish, how did his son Joseph respond? He asks Pharaoh, for leave to take his father's bones back to the cave of Machpelah to be buried, symbolizing the journey of God's people out of captivity and back into the promised land. So all this to say, apart from the Garden of Eden, this is one of the most significant places in all of Genesis because it is the embodiment of what it means to die trusting in the promise of God. You may ask yourself, and I've asked it plenty of times, why all the talk about land? We as Christians know that we worship God in no particular place. We worship in spirit and truth with God's people. This church building is not a temple. We enjoy constant access to God and his people are spread all over the face of the earth. But brothers and sisters, if you and I shy away from acknowledging the reality that first, we are sojourners and exiles, as Peter describes us, and second, there is a very real land promised to us, then we are missing out. Let me say it again in a different way. If you as a Christian are not looking ahead to a real concrete place in the presence of a real tangible savior, then you and I must look back at our Bibles and understand what is it that God has promised us? Because we may not be using these promises in a way that propels us to act in faith in the God of the promise if we haven't grasped what he's, as, what he's prepared for us. It might very well be a factor contributing to the feeling that you have 
that you're like a sputtering junker of a propeller plane heading to a destination rather than a jet cruising with purpose to its landing place. There are many who think that the land promises made to Israel are either obsolete or they've been fulfilled already. Or they're only for ethnic Israelites who now have a country of their own. Some would say that the best thing Christians can do is just help Israel maintain geopolitical control over its historic homeland. Now I realize that current events might make this button seem a bit hotter than normal, but let me be clear and say that this is not how our Bible talks about the promised land, especially post the first coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is so much better than what we think. I wanna use two test passages to see if we're interpreting and also believing things in the way God has laid them out and I'll use them both from the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah. First, Isaiah 60, 21. In your Bibles, that section may have a heading above it that says, Israel's future glory. Okay, so Isaiah's prophecy was written to Israel who is bound for exile and yet he's making these wonderful promises about the future of a remnant of God's people who trust in him. He says, your people, Israel, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. Now, under what circumstances will all people, all these people be righteous? The answer is by believing in the suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah, Jesus, who died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's only possible because of his death and resurrection. Okay, so these, these are the people, Christians, who will possess the land and dwell with God. Yes, but it's much better than it sounds at first because earlier, and this is our second passage, earlier in Isaiah in chapter 54, Isaiah describes the borders of a land that is growing. He says, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations. So Christians, those called by God and who have staked their forgiveness and future on Jesus will not inherit the land of Israel. They will inherit the whole world as a dwelling place. Church, God will dwell with us in a newly remade heavens and earth. And if that doesn't excite you, ask yourself why not. If that doesn't motivate you to live looking ahead, ask yourself why not. I think for, for many of us, the background question is could it, could it really be true? which makes it a matter of faith. Faith in a God who promises and who is faithful across generations. A few months ago, these words about Abraham and Sarah changed Jackie and I both. Hebrews 11, after this list of faithful, God-fearing, trusting believers, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, step one, they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, not have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Jack and I were confronted with the question, in what ways is it clear in your life that you are seeking your true homeland? That question propelled us into pursuing foster care training, knowing that no amount of inconvenience or difficulty in our home would trump the promises of our future home. It may not look like that exact thing for you. It may look like courageously getting out of bed under a cloud of depression and faith that God will stay true to his promises. It may look something like Sovereign Grace Church Dayton planning a church, which we hope to do one day, and saying, I'll sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom by moving or losing friendships or giving sacrificially. It may look like actively pursuing reconciliation with a spouse or friend or child, even when you'd rather not. It may look like seizing an opportunity to pour your time and energy into one person who neither knows Jesus Christ nor lives with the same values as you. It may look like any number of things, but friends, it must, our faith must look like something. Even right now and today, it must look like something. To encourage you guys, I think, I think that you're here as an expression of faith. It does look like something. It looks like, let's hear the word of God. Let's worship the living and true God who we know through Jesus Christ. Any, any number of things, whether, whether the mundane or the major, if our lives are built upon Christ and his promises, our faith in him must be expressed and not as cold obligation. No, instead, we act as those who have received a promise from a faithful God, a promise of a real, true homeland where Jesus Christ, our Lord, dwells, and we will dwell with him forever. As Hebrews calls it, a better country. It's not a far cry to look at Abraham and his grief and faith buying the cave of Machpelah and for us to say, God is a reliable God and there are no conditions under which I cannot trust him and move forward in faith with the help of his spirit. This brings us to the next section of the story, chapter 24, where we see God's faithfulness spanning generations. God's faithfulness spans generations. Seeing that Abraham has aged and has buried his wife, he turns to the next most important task, and his new aim with these final days to pass the torch of God's unfailing promise to his promised son by securing a wife for Isaac. It may seem odd to us this whole process of finding a wife for his son, but a few things you should know is that in that culture, arranged marriages were one of the responsibilities of a father and it was not handled lightly. In order to maintain the values and the heritage of the family, Wives would be selected from that family's clan. This is still common in other cultures today around the world, and you see it in play here in Abraham's next steps. So as you, as you might imagine, this is a weighty moment in Abraham's life. So what are his priorities? How is he thinking through this decision? This is a serious decision, not simply because it involves his only son from Sarah, but because there's a direct relationship to what God has already said about Isaac and what Abraham now intends to do. Before Isaac was born, Abraham asked God if he would just bless Ishmael instead, to which God said no, and that his covenant would be with Isaac and not Ishmael. So here Abraham is taking God's word seriously, which is proven even as he quotes God's word, words as he commissions his servant. 
Another priority for Abraham is that this must be carried out not just by someone more able-bodied than him, but someone who he trusts very deeply. So he sends his most responsible servant. We can assume that, that this head servant is Eliezer, mentioned in chapter 15, who would have inherited all of Abraham's possessions if Isaac had not been born. But Abraham trusts this man. And as we'll see, this servant embodies his master's trust in the Lord. Abraham makes this servant put his hand under Abraham's thigh in a very personal and extreme act that symbolizes swearing on Abraham's offspring to keep his oath. This builds a whole lot of suspense in the story when it comes to whether or not the servant will keep to the plan or how he would do so. So Abraham is also, there's all these factors in play for him, including the fact that he's seriously taking, he's taking the threat seriously that the Canaanites would pose if Isaac were to marry a woman from the Canaanites. Not, not militarily or anything like that, but spiritually. He knows that the Canaanites do not worship the one true God and that taking a wife from the Canaanites would put Isaac in a difficult position when it comes to keeping full allegiance to Yahweh and not Canaanite gods. Abraham's family didn't follow Yahweh either, but they are being invited to do so, which Rebecca responds positively to. Lastly, another parameter set out by Abraham, an important one, is that the servant should by no means take Isaac back to the place from which Abraham departed if the soon-to-be wife refuses to come. He says in verse seven, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham knows the cost of faithlessly leaving the promised land, Lot being an example of this. Isaac must stay here. Again, building a suspense for whether, what, whether that will remain the case. This is a decision based firmly in the promise of God and nothing less. You see, Abraham, he's become pretty single-minded in his old age in a good way. Whether in choosing a burial place for Sarah or a wife for Isaac, he is predicating his whole life on the explicit word and promise of his faithful God. And isn't that just instructive for us? We want to operate this way. What's also instructive is the example of this servant. He is trusted by Abraham. He is shrewd as he predicts the possibility of this woman, woman refusing his offer and their family putting certain stipulations on things. But what is most remarkable about him is how he approaches the entire situation in faith. Listen to his prayer. When he gets everything packed up and ready to go, he says, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He is counting on God to act. What I love about this is that this nameless servant is coming before Yahweh, personally asking him to be faithful to his promise made to his master Abraham. He even humbly asks God for, to do something very specific, praying for clarity on who it is that God has set aside for Isaac, rather than simply relying on his own intuition. There is a God who is sovereign over this whole ordeal, and this servant will rely on him and to arrange things how he sees fit. 
At this point, in fact, while the servant was still praying aloud, God answers his prayers as Rebecca arrives on the scene. She was born to Bethuel and is in Abraham's family clan. Again, read your Bibles carefully. There's this little section after Isaac and Abraham come down off the mountain where it introduces the fact that Abraham's family is growing in his home, in his home country and it introduces Rebecca. So you pick that up from 22, you bring it over to chapter 24. This is the Rebecca that they were talking about. She fits the requirements. She's from the family clan, but on top of that, she is described as a beautiful woman who had not known a man and thus whose children would be undeniably Isaac's and Isaac's alone. Rebecca has come to draw water for the family, which was a task in and of itself. That means when the servant, who is likely her elder, puts forth this test to draw water for him and his camels, whom I'm told can drink up to 25 gallons of water apiece, uh, Rebecca has her work cut out for her. But she's hospitable and diligent and does exactly what the servant asks. Hence, his bated breath in verse 24. And the man gazed at her in silence. He's trying to take stock of the situation. Could this really be to learn whether the Lord has prospered his journey or not? He's expectant. He's hopeful. Is this an answer to his prayer and fulfillment of his master's task? Immediately after Rebecca follows through with the watering, the man explodes into action. He puts jewelry on her as a reward. He invites himself over so he can speak with her family. And after all this, after she accepts, what, is, what does he do? The man bowed his head and worshiped to the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So out of the mouth of a lowly servant comes such glorious words. God has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness, and here is proof again. No, Mr. Servant, he has not, because he said he would bless Abraham, and he said he would bless Isaac, and here the Lord is fulfilling his promises in wonderful fashion. Now, full disclosure, this is, this is my, one of my favorite chapters in Genesis because of this man, this unnamed servant. He's remarkable. He, his simple trust in a faithful God, along with the fact that Abraham's faith was so compelling to this servant that he would follow in his footsteps, is just remarkable. It's so remarkable that this is the longest and most detailed narrative up to this point in the book, and it involves a man who isn't named. It's on purpose. It's all to highlight the silent, promise-preserving, and flame-protecting hand of our merciful God. The story from this point seems to repeat itself as the servant explains why is he here to Rebecca and as he recounts the events to Rebecca's family. His goal is to prove that Yahweh, Abraham's God, the Lord over all things, is behind all of this. Man, some of, some of the guys in the room May have had that one in your back pocket when asking for a father's permission. How about it? Sir, the God of the universe has ordained for this marriage to happen. So what do you say? I mean, at that point, it's either irresistible or you get written off as certifiably insane. But in this case, it's true. The Lord led his servant here. It has all come from him. 
Along the way, we meet Laban, Rebecca's brother, who will show up again when Jacob seeks for a wife and is tricked. Similarly here, Laban and his father agreed to give Rebecca as a wife to Isaac, but he and his mother try to keep her for a time, leaving a very important decision in the hands of Rebecca. Does she linger and give opportunity for this whole thing to fall through? No. She acts right away in faith in the God of Abraham. This is remarkably similar to Abraham who was called out of the same land and he responds in faith and obedience. Rebecca is being called into the promise of God through marrying Isaac and she responds surprisingly similarly. And now this is exactly a picture of what the good news going out to us should elicit. Are we gonna, are we gonna turn a blind eye and stay away from it? Are we, gonna, are we gonna come into the promise of God? Are we gonna believe what he's saying? Even if it's the first time we've heard it, even if it's the hundredth time we've heard it, or are we gonna stay back in which case much of this would fall apart? Rebecca responds in faith. In a prophetic moment, the family blesses her and says, our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him, which serves to show that Rebecca will occupy the line from from whom God will bless all the nations along with guaranteeing future victory for her offspring. Finally, as the servant returns with Rebekah, she is presented to Isaac in the first union that's been detailed since Adam and Eve. And the result is surprisingly beautiful and human. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted at his mother's death. This is a love story. It's a beautiful one. And the joy of this marriage is, is placed beneath this glorious and intentional plan of God. In fact, it is a remarkable description of the relationship between our role as those responsible for our actions and the sovereign Lord who ordains everything that takes place in our lives. God was orchestrating and the servant was responsible to follow through on his oath. God was in every detail and Rebecca chose to go quickly and to not stay. Though we can never attempt to parse out how this looks in each and every decision of our lives, we can rest assured that, that God is in control, but we must also take responsibility to live in a manner that is faithful to him and worthy of the gospel of Christ. For example, we don't sit on our hands and ask God to provide. We work and we trust him for his provision. It would be foolish for a father or mother to say, God is sovereign, he'll get scripture into the hearts and minds of my kids somehow. No, instead we plod faithfully in reading the word to our kids, trusting him with the outcome of whether it will change their hearts. We don't count on our unsaved friends suddenly having a dream in which they repent from all their sin and trust in Christ. Instead, we act in faith and tell them about a crucified savior and his resurrection and hell and heaven, trusting God for the outcome of whether or not they will believe. We walk like Abraham, like the servant, by faith. We believe what we do not see and we walk accordingly. The faith shows up in our footprints of what we choose to do, where we choose to go, how we choose to spend our money, what virtues we cultivate in ourselves and our families and how we respond to jarring life events. This is where I just want to ask a question as we see these specific steps of faith taken by key figures in Genesis. Are we living by faith 
in the promises of God or are we going along with the trends or lifestyles or decision matrices of the world? Are we consciously letting the worth of Jesus and the reward we will receive play into the risks we take, the time we dedicate, the way we speak, the way we pray and give and work? Are there a number of things that you may be up against that seem to force you into a place back on your heels rather than pressing on in faith? No doubt. You are legitimately opposed in crippling ways. Proceeding in faith in God's promise may look different. But for me, I know there are many times when I don't feel particularly resisted and and yet how I'm living may look like middle-class America who loves his stuff and refuses to do anything that would take him away from a comfy couch. If you're like me, I'd venture to guess that we have simply not made a habit of daily doing things that require an all-powerful God to make happen, that require the risen Lord Jesus to act or else it will fail. In other words, that require faith in Jesus. We instead have grown used to relying on only what our own limited capabilities and planning can bring about. The goal isn't to become a daredevil of sorts. The goal instead is to live purposefully and as if the promises of God truly are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let these chapters incite in us the reality that God's promises fulfilled in Jesus are worth acting upon in clear ways. If he will not let me be put to shame, then the shame brought on by others is something I will choose not to fear. If he will not forsake me, then I will go where I thought before that he might not follow. If he will give me wisdom and spiritual insight, I will ask for it and move ahead. Now we come to chapter 25. God's faithfulness sustains us to the end. Although Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, it is not long in the story after that that his father dies as well. Before that, though, we're told that Abraham takes another wife after Sarah's passing. She has six sons who had children of their own. The point here is to show that already Abraham's name is fitting. He is the father of nations, and God has blessed him. But equally important, after listing all these sons in one phrase, and there's one phrase that shows up in verse five. All these new sons, but Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Again, he knows what God has promised and he will act accordingly. He will give gifts to those other children and, but send them away so as not to interfere and he will bless Isaac solely. And now we come to a significant moment in the story of Genesis. We have followed Abraham since chapter 12. It's 13 chapters that we've paid close attention to his movements and his life. He is the sole recipient of the promise. So what comes next? These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, together his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. In fulfillment of the promise, 
made to Abraham, he did live to a good old age of 175 years. Both of his sons, in respect for him, buried him in that special place, the cave of Machpelah, and God blessed Isaac, the living son of the promise, who settled in the promised land. He didn't go away. The stage is set for the promise to continue all because of God's steadfast faithfulness and commitment to his own word. Israel, who's hearing this, knows Yahweh as the God who acted in certain ways towards the patriarchs. He is the God of blank and blank and blank. Well, here we see the God of Abraham has now become the God of Isaac. And who will, after we celebrate Advent, we will see him become the God of Jacob. He is the God attached to undeserving people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the faithful one, the promising God, the Lord of his chosen ones, is going nowhere on his people. You may know the beginning of Matthew begins with a genealogy listing 28 generations of people beginning with Abraham and ending with Jesus Christ, showing that he himself is given the torch of God's promise as it is passed through the generations. And you, you probably have a picture in your, there's lots of iconic pictures of the lighting of the cauldron at the Olympic Games. The last person to carry that torch, what does Jesus do as that last handoff, the anchor runner? He ensures that the promises of God will come true by dying for our sins and then rising from the dead, proving that not even death can keep him from being faithful to who? To you, church. Jesus Christ will never die again and death no longer has dominion over him. We've seen God stay faithful in, in the midst of two deaths in this passage and we see him stay faithful again through the most important death and how did he do so? By conquering over death. We trust in the Lord over death to stay faithful to us even as so many generations have passed since that time. We know that he is seated at the right hand of God, full of power, full of glory, and never to be defeated again by anything that would threaten his commitment to his word. So for those whose days were long and you are looking at fewer years ahead, for those who are wondering what will come of their kids as the world seem, seems darker by the day, for those who are scared of what tomorrow holds, for those who have wondered where God has been in these last few months and years, for those who need motivation to press on, for those who are not quite sure what God is calling you to do next, I would ask you this question, who is the king throughout all generations? Jesus Christ, your Lord, your savior who loves you now and will love you for eternity, who guards you, who upholds you, who does not lose one of the sheep entrusted to him, who is inviting you to stake your life upon what he has said and not some other paradigm, the one who cannot be dissuaded by Satan and our enemies, who will return one day in power to defeat evil and the evil one forever. Jesus is the king throughout all generations, a faithful king at that, who will bring you into his presence in his land with joy one day, which is when we look back at scripture, when we look back at the Psalms, we sing these verses to our crucified savior. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. For the Lord is good, 
His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. He is faithful because he lives and he lives forevermore. Not even the greatest threat of death as shown in these passages, not even the greatest threat of death will be able to take out the flame of his promise. It now sits burning in that cauldron over the the Olympic games that, that it has traveled so far and now it remains and will remain forevermore. His faithfulness will remain. But our risen Lord gives us a warning about whether we live in such a way that reflects belief in his word or allegiance with our lips only. He says, heaven and earth in Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. His warning is that it is possible for us to become lulled to sleep or consumed with sinful patterns when his call is to stay alert because his coming will surely happen. But listen also to what happens if you and I take today and live not just as a moral person, not as a philanthropist, not as a do-gooder, but as a Christian, as one who believes that Jesus came in the flesh and is our salvation and is coming again for us. He says in Luke 12, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So friends, God, God whose faithfulness spans generations is inviting us. He's inviting us to act upon our promised future as those who believe that he will fulfill his word.